What I like to do is talk about uh, Christianity 101, sort of from a Christian hedonist perspective, which is what I call my vision of life, Christian hedonism, not like the little girl from Canada who heard heathenism, <laughs> which is what some people think hedonism is, but I looked it up in my, I think, Webster's 11th uh, edition, and it said, a life devoted to the pursuit of pleasure is what hedonism is, and that's what I mean by it. And so I won't give you an extensive historical defense of Christianity tonight, though we could talk about those issues later. One of the ways to come to conviction about a view of life and God and joy and family and world is not only to investigate evidences for claims, but the very nature of the claims themselves as to whether they appear to be coherent, coherent and whether they fit into the universe as you see it see it, and that's the approach I would like to take tonight. I'm only given a few minutes. Mark told me, this is not your typical church crowd, and so you can't talk forever tonight, and so this will have to be short. Let's start like this. Um, Christianity is not first a philosophy of being. It's not first a code of morality, and it's not first a theory of knowledge. It's not philosophical at root, it's news. News about events. And the key events that it's news about is the coming into the world of the Son of God named Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life and who died a death that the New Testament says is in our place such that all who will entrust their lives to him find all of their offenses against God remitted so that we can have an acceptance with the Father of the universe and an everlasting life. Now, that news is called gospel. That's a common word. And what I find is that if you take these loaded words and begin to unpack them, you find yourself driven to what I call Christian hedonism. So let me just try to do that very briefly here at the front end and then give you some evidences or reasons for why I embrace this view. Gospel is good news about something, but it doesn't say what the good news is. So it's not adequate to simply say, Christians believe gospel. That doesn't say anything. It doesn't tell you anything. It's just, that's a zero. Good news about what? So you could add good news about Forgiveness of sins against God who created the universe and who is angry at us because we have offended him so badly and have fallen short of what we were created to be in his image. And so there is just wrath against us and we can be forgiven and that would be our gospel. But if you analyze the word forgiveness, that somebody could say, well, so what? Who cares about being forgiven? Because forgiveness in and of itself doesn't mean anything. The only value forgiveness has is if there's a relationship that's been wrecked and you really, really like to have it restored because the restoration would be so pleasant to you. And so forgiveness in and of itself, if, if I say something really crabby to my wife when I wake up in the morning and, 
and uh, she's offended, and, and I'm feeling angry, and, and I walk out of the room, and we go down the kitchen. She's in the kitchen standing at the sink, and I'm over there pouring my cereal, and there's ice in the air. I know what needs to happen. I need to be forgiven, and I need to ask for forgiveness. Why? I want her back, right? <laughs> I don't want, when I walk over to the sink and kiss her on the back of the neck, I don't want her to jerk away and walk out of the room. I'd like her to turn around and reciprocate. So the only value that forgiveness has is to get my wife back. So to say gospel doesn't say anything, it just leads us somewhere. Good news about what? You say forgiveness, and that doesn't mean anything because it's all about what forgiveness opens the door, the door to. So we have to go further and say, well, what does it open the door to? What does Christianity say? This thing called forgiveness opens the door to. And then you could use another nice Christian word called salvation, saved. And that doesn't tell us anything. Say from what, for what. It's just an empty word. See how amazing these words are. They don't say much. You've got to press them and press them and press them until you arrive at something that sounds good. And they don't sound good yet. I mean, save sounds sort of good, but you don't know what you say from or what you say for. So let's say we're saved for, well, everybody would say from wrath, judgment, hell, condemnation. Yes, good. Nobody wants to be condemned. But for what? Maybe it would be, you could say, eternal life. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. They say, there, you can have life if you are forgiven. And they say, well, maybe I don't want it because it might be boring. Endless boredom is not interesting to me. And so even with the word life, we haven't gotten anywhere. Isn't it amazing how many words we can use to describe Christianity without saying anything yet? That sounds good to anybody. So I have to say saved for what? And we can say life. And then I ask, what kind of life? Where? With whom? Will I want this life? There are lives I don't want to live. Maybe the one you're living now you don't want to live, which would be a very dangerous position for you to be in tonight. And I'm glad you're here because I would like to turn that around. So my answer, and I'm going to take this from an Old Testament passage of Scripture in the Psalms, number 16, verse 11, goes like this. You, O God, show me the path of life. And then it defines it like this. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And now you're talking language that sounds like goodness. Fullness of joy, pleasures that never end. Okay, okay. Gospel might not have meant very much. Forgiveness might not have meant very much. Saved might not have meant very much. Life might not have meant very much, but pleasure, I want that. Joy, that's full and never-ending. You see those two modifiers? Full means not 90% proof, but 100% proof, pleasure, joy. And then everlasting, that means it never comes to an end. I'm not interested in your offer of 800 years of pleasure. No, thank you. I want it to last forever. If this text is true, big if, right? If this text is true, Psalm 16:11, the one place that can be found is in God. And Jesus Christ, Christianity teaches, the gospel is Jesus Christ came into the world to die in the place of sinners 
so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be saved from the opposite of that, for that life which is everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure in his presence. Now, I grew up in a home with a dad who was a believer, who prayed every night, and I learned from him to pray that God would be glorified in all things, which creates a problem for me now with this particular train of thought. Because here I've arrived at a point where it looks like I'm saying, the gospel is all about my joy. And my dad prayed in a way that taught me the gospel is all about God's glory, his beauty, his power, his justice, his truth, his goodness, his mercy. It's all about making much of him, lifting up him, honoring him, worshiping him. And that's all over the Bible. I think the, tel- the title they gave to this talk tonight was Created for Joy. Well, the Bible is crystal clear that we're created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, says the Lord. So now I've got my heart longing for this joy over here. And the Bible saying the end of all gospel, salvation, forgiveness, life is pleasures at God's right hand. And I've got these other passages of scripture over here that say you're created for his glory. Everything is for his glory. In other words, to show how great he is and to magnify him. Now here's my discovery, and I learned it indirectly from the Bible through Jonathan Edwards, who lived 250 years ago. And my way of saying it is this, to bring these two together. God is most glorified, honored, praised, made much of. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. When I discovered that in 1968, it turned my world upside down. I no longer felt ripped apart inside. Because I knew two things. One I knew mainly from the Bible. The other I knew mainly from my heart. From the Bible and my dad, I knew mainly God is God and don't mess around with him. He means to be honored, worshipped, and glorified. And I knew from my heart, I want to be happy. And I couldn't get the two together. They seemed to be like oil and water. And then I discovered Edwards first, who said... I'll read you part of the quote I brought along here in my pile somewhere. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, 
but by its being rejoiced in. I never heard anybody say that before 1968 when I was a beginner at Fuller Seminary. I had never heard anybody say, God is glorified by being rejoiced in. If that's true, and if he is the infinitely valuable person in the universe, if that's true, then the two things that seemed at odds aren't at odds anymore. God is glorified by being rejoiced in. I thought, could it possibly be? This would be the best of all possible worlds. That God would be made much of. That God would be shown to be glorious. That God would be declared as excellent and awesome and just and true and holy and good and everlasting by my being happy in Him. Then I would have all I ever longed for and He would have the honor that belongs to Him. And therefore, I began to look for it in the Bible. Because if it's just a human opinion, it's of no significance. But if it's in the Bible, at least there's a long tradition behind it. (laughs) And if the Bible happens to be, as I believe it is, the Word of God, then you have divine warrant for it. So let me read a text for you. I'll just quote the text for you and show you one place in the Bible where I, I underline this. Paul wrote a letter, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And in chapter 1 of that letter, he said, It is my eager expectation and hope that I may not at all be ashamed, but that Christ, this is Christ the Son of God, risen from the dead now, having died and risen, that Christ would be magnified. You could choose the word honored or made much of or glorified. That Christ would be magnified or praised in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, back up with me. And think hard for just two minutes about that text. He said his passion in life, this is what it means to be a Christian, to have a passion that your life make Jesus look really good. That's what it means to be a Christian. So live as not to make yourself look good, but to make the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords look magnificent. So he said my passion is that that would happen in my body whether I live or whether I die. So let's take this death, death half. I want God, Jesus Christ, to look magnificent in my body by the way I die. And then he adds this phrase. For to me, to die is gain. Now work on the logic of that for just a moment. You got a ground clause. For to die is gain. And that is supporting his passion that in his body, by his death, Christ would be magnified. 
Are you starting to get it? Probably not. (laughs) How do I fulfill his design to be made magnificent and shown magnificent in the world? Paul's answer, by the way I die, and the way I die is by counting him gain in my dying. In other words, if I can be, well, maybe I'm missing a premise. Maybe that's why it's not clicking as quick. There's a premise I'm leaving out of the argument, which is found two verses later. Two verses later, he says, I desire to stay and to go. I don't know which I shall choose. To stay will be labor for you. To go, that is to die, will be much better to be with Christ. Now we know why it's gain to die. At least in Paul's mind, this being, this person, this risen son of God who had lived this perfect life and had loved so deeply and died so terribly and risen so triumphantly is now in heaven, will come in judgment someday. And he says, if I die, it will be gain because I will go to be with him. Now put it together. How can I magnify God in my body through death? Answer by counting death gain. That is, by being so satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ that I can let everything in this life go and count death gain. If I lose everything this world has to offer and count it gain because I get Christ, that kind of death will make Jesus look really good. That's the argument of the apostle, which is exactly what Edwards said. God or Christ, his son, is glorified in being rejoiced in. Or to put it in the death situation, Paul's saying, Christ will be magnified in my body if I'm so satisfied in Christ that to gain him and lose everything else is gain. So I do say this is biblical. In other words, Edwards' quote, which I also got from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, and now found it in the Bible, this is biblical. And the implications of it for life are absolutely staggering. And I'll mention the main one. If it's true that God created you both to be magnified by you in the way you live, to be made much of by you, and for you to be satisfied all the days of your life and then increasingly for eternity, and they come together, you know what your lifelong vocation should be? The pursuit of pleasure in God. That's why I call it Christian hedonism. Because if you buy into the Kantian ethic that hangs in the air of American church life that says to the degree that you perform any act of virtue or worship for benefit that you receive, you destroy its virtue. That hangs in the air in the churches we attend or in the classes you attend or in the business place where you are. Virtue, ever since Immanuel Kant especially, is that which you do with no view to your benefit whatsoever, but sheer duty that hangs in the air. It ruins worship service after worship service, turns Christianity into something it's not, so that an iron ran rejects it out of hand as a ridiculous 
kind of selling your highest values for your lowest, and it's a distortion. It isn't Christianity. Christianity is not the forsaking of the pursuit of pleasure. It's the glutting of the pursuit of pleasure on the right object, namely the living God manifest in Jesus Christ, loving us in history and on the cross. Therefore, if we want to honor him, if we want to make him look good in Washington, D.C. or Minneapolis, Minnesota, we must pursue joy in him. If you are indifferent to your joy, you're indifferent to the glory of God. And that is sin. And we'll get you in trouble with him. And this is incredibly good news. That the way to get out of trouble with God is by delighting in him. It's like uh, sometimes I've uh, tried to figure out what is the fear of God. Because the fear of God's a big deal in the Bible, right? It's the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Here I'm going around telling everybody to be happy in God. What do you do with the fear of God, Piper? The Bible is full of the fear of God. Get the fear of God into the people. Well, I believe in the fear of God. But like this, I went to visit one of the deacons in our church one time when I first came about 20 years ago. And my Karsten, let's see, he's 30 now, so it was longer than, so he would have been about seven or eight. Well, that's what he was. He was a little, like this. And they had a, a huge dog. We opened the door, and, and my six-year-old looked this dog right in the eye and was quite stunned. This dog, if he had opened his mouth, could take his head off. I mean, he was like a gorilla, as far as I was concerned. And the guy's name was Dick. And uh, he said, oh, he's, he's all right. He's all right. He won't bother anybody. So Carson, brave as he was, kind of stepped around him. And, and then we realized we'd forgotten something in the car. And I said, Carson, would you run out and get Mommy's purse? And Carson, obedient that he is, starts trotting out to the car. And this dog pushes the door open with his nose and with his deep, but up right behind him, you know, like this. And, and Karsten looks over, and Dick, Dick leans out. Karsten's just about ready to lose it, and he, he hasn't lost it yet. And Dick says, oh, by the way, don't run away from him. He doesn't like you to run away from him. <laughs> Just walk. Let him go with you. And at that moment, I said, if that isn't a most magnificent picture of the fear of God, don't run away from him. He'll bite your head off. <laughs> Turn around, give him a big hug, he'll lick you forever. That really is the meaning of the fear of God in the Bible. Silly as the illustration sounds, that's exactly what the fear of God is. You run away from this God, you've got an enemy. You run toward this God, you've got a friend. And the only way to run toward him is in Jesus. Pursue your joy toward God, and he gets the glory as a big, friendly, gracious, forgiving German shepherd. And you run the other way trying to get your joy... 
wherever you get it outside him, you have an enemy and you don't want him as your enemy. You want him as your friend. So run to him through Jesus. Now, the implication, therefore, is that we should pursue him or pursue our joy all the time. And maybe I could just take a few more minutes and show you. You don't have Bibles probably, and I'm just going to quote fast several arguments for this crazy point of Christian hedonism that says you should make it your vocation all your life long to pursue your joy in God. So here are a few arguments for that. Uh, Number one, you're commanded to do this. Delight yourself in the Lord, God says in Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's a command, like, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt rejoice in the Lord your God. It's a command. I remember one person said to me one time, Piper, you should stop going around telling people to be happy in God and start telling them to obey God. I thought, hmm, obey God, be happy in God. That's like saying... Don't tell them to eat apples. Tell them to eat fruit. <laughs> because the Bible says, I mean, what is obedience? Obedience is doing what he says, right? And he says, delight in me. Come to me. Rejoice in me. Be glad in me. Take pleasure in me. That's a command. Obedience. obedience. Okay, okay, I'll obey. I don't buy this choice between, it's a category confusion, between obedience and joy. This is one of the things we're supposed to do to obey. In fact, it better infect all the other things we do to obey, otherwise it'll be legalism. Raw duty, which doesn't please God, just makes you look like you've got strong willpower. Second argument, God threatens terrible things if we won't be happy. Deuteronomy 28:47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you will serve your enemies. Isn't that amazing? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness, you're going to serve your enemies. In other words, if you won't be happy in me, then I'll give you away to your enemies. God is summoning us. He's summoning us always to find Him as our joy. Third argument. The nature of faith teaches that we should pursue our satisfaction in God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me, believes in me, will never thirst. So my definition of faith is this. So if you wonder, how do you become a Christian? If this is Christianity, how do you become one? And the answer is, believe in Christ. And you say, what's that? John, Jesus speaking in this gospel, John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will not thirst. So here's my definition. Believing Christ is a soul coming. It's not a body coming. Your body can sit right where you are. It is a a movement of the heart, a movement of the soul, a movement of the mind out to God, so to Christ, so as to find soul satisfaction in him. Call it water, call it food, bread and water. Those are just images of what food is to your stomach, he is to your soul, to your life. You've come to Christ so as to be satisfied, that's believing on him. Fourth argument, the nature of evil teaches that the pursuit of satisfaction in God should be our daily, hourly vocation. Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, put it like this. 
Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two great evils. Now, what are they? What's the definition of evil? My people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have carved out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isn't that an amazing definition of evil? Evil is leaving a fountain and putting your mouth in dirt to try to get water out of the dirt because you're thirsty. And God is saying, I'm the fountain. I'm the fountain. I made you. I know you. I am infinitely satisfying. I made you to know me, to be satisfied in me, to love me, to enjoy me forever, increasingly. Don't turn away and carve out for yourself another fountain which has no water in it. You know why people do that? The dirt tastes so good. It really does. I admit that. The dirt tastes good. Many of you have tasted it. You may be feeding on it right now. And bothers you when Christians call it sin. Bothers you when they claim to be the ones who have the source of happiness. And you're quite happy in the dirt because it tastes so good. And until something goes off in your head, you won't see it as poison. And lacking in everlasting nutrition. But I would just commend to you that if you turn away from God as your fountain, all other cisterns are going to be broken and empty. At least in the end, you will find it so. And I think in the late night hours, if you're like me anyway, your conscience will tell you so. Argument number five. Only got, only got a couple more. Two or three or four. I'll try to discern if you're checking out on me here. But the nature of conversion. There's one parable. You know the parables of Jesus. A one-verse parable goes like this. This, to me, gripped me because it gets at the nature of Christianity and conversion. If, if, just ask yourself. Seriously, you're an unbeliever sitting there tonight. You're not a follower of Jesus. Here. What would it mean? What would it mean? What would be a picture of my becoming a Christian tonight? Now, here's a one-verse parable from Jesus Christ. And almost every scholar believes he told these parables. You know, scholars all over the place on how many sayings he said and didn't say. Joachim Jeremias, I studied with his son in Germany, so I get them mixed up. Jörg is the Old Testament scholar, and Joachim is the New Testament scholar. And he wrote a book on the parables of Jesus, and he, he persuaded almost everybody these key parables. He said, the church never used these. Nobody made these up. Jesus used these parables. So this is from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Almost everybody agrees. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and covered it over and from joy went and sold everything he had and bought that field. End of parable. That's a picture of the arrival of King Jesus in your life. You're walking through life and owing to the amazing providence and grace of God, you stub your toe on a sermon or something. <laughs> and you, you, you lean down and you brush it off and you open it. And by grace, the eyes of your head or the eyes of your heart look in and say, Phew, must be millions of dollars in there. 
I wonder if anybody saw me. And the law of the land is, if you own the field, you own what's in it. i got to get this field. I will have this field. And you cover it over, pat it down. Nobody's going to see the field. Not everything in a parable is to be taken to literally, right? You're not supposed to keep the gospel to yourself. Pat it down. Don't let anybody see it. And you run off. You sell your wedding ring. You sell your grandfather's clock that your grandmother gave you. You sell your car, your computer, all your CDs. And you buy the field. That's what it means to become a Christian. In other words, becoming a Christian is recognizing Christ as an all-satisfying treasure. And, and my son, this might be a good place to tell you the story, because a few of you have been praying for Abraham, and he wouldn't mind me telling you. My 22-year-old son, 22-year-old son, is living in a van in Pensacola, Florida, making rock music. He doesn't own anything. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have any insurance. I pray every day that he didn't get some awful disease. And he wasn't walking with the Lord, wasn't walking with the Lord for about three years, breaking my heart. Loving me, never hostile or angry at me, even saying academically, Daddy, your theology is probably the best theology as it goes, and, and it's just not mine. Thursday a week ago, I got an email which began with the sentence, I am saved. And then he documented the influences most immediately. Some of you have been praying for him for years, and I thank you for it. And I want you to praise God with me. And some of you are right where my son Abraham was, and your dad and mama praying for you, perhaps. Some grandmama just yearning that you would experience what Abraham did. So what, what, what happened? He came home for two weeks, and he helped two young women in our church move into their apartment. And these women were very strong, very articulate, and no-nonsense, in-your-face kind of women. <laughs> And they let him know in no uncertain terms what the truth was and what he needed to do and mention some Bible verses. And my son knows the Bible better than they do, probably. But that doesn't make a bit of difference because he had grown numb and blank and blind. And he got on the plane. We stuck a book. I said, can I stick a couple of books in your bag? And I said, sure. He got down there. He called us on Tuesday and said, uh, I read the books, Daddy. This is two days later. They were my books. <laughs> and we, we, we didn't know quite what to say. We took our breath away, you know. And he said, would you send me a copy of Sieg and Savoring Jesus? Noel didn't say anything except yes. <laughs> Get that in the mail right away. Thank you. Hang up. What's going on? You're kind of, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, could it be? Could it be? And then the email comes two days later, and he says three things, and then seven requests for prayer to triumph over all the crap in his life. Number one, your patience and your love, you and Mommy, have always humbled me and made me glad. Number two, I broke it off with so-and-so a young woman, and for the first time in six years, it feels final, right, good. Three, Molly mentioned a verse, and I couldn't find it, so I decided to read Romans until I found it. That's dangerous. That's really dangerous. He said, I read Romans 1 to 10, and that did the trick. So here you are tonight, and, and uh, the reason I mention that story is because 
finding Jesus as a treasure is a gift. And yet there are things you can do to, to get in the way of the gift. Like open the Bible, like my son. After three years of a closed Bible, walking away from his dad's faith and all that I thought he had believed, he decides, why? Why on this particular day? Why on this particular trip home? Why Molly and not all the other people that had been in his life for years? I don't know why. He just opens his Bible, and by the time he gets to chapter 10, he's saved. He's a believer. He has seen. His heart has seen. Christ has stepped forth, as it were, spiritually out of the Bible, commended himself to his trust and won him over as a believer. So that little parable is a beautiful description of what it means to be saved. Close like this. A lot of people would say to me, you know, usually Christians that talk this way, or people who are are uh, in the church and then left the church, but they remember a little bit. They say, you, you talk about pursuing joy and seeking your own pleasure, blah, 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 all the time. What about self-denial? I mean, the Bible says, Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Didn't deny himself. You're going around telling people to commit suicide. Because the Bible says, if you deny yourself, then you gain life. And you're telling people to glut their pleasures on God. I really believe in self-denial, but not ultimate self-denial. Because the Bible nowhere teaches ultimate self-denial. The Bible teaches deny yourself tin so that you can have gold. Deny yourself brackish water so you can have a flowing stream. Deny yourself some old crummy Juice so you can have wine. The Bible says deny yourself soul sickness so you can have health. Deny yourself second-rate two-bit pleasures so that you can have everlasting infinite joy. Yes, there is self-denial. You must deny yourself all those apparent things so they don't become your idols and your lords so that you can have Him. Because... When you deny yourself all those things and you choose Christ and you delight in Christ above everything else, you show that he is valuable. The Apostle Paul said, I count everything as rubbish in order that I might have the surpassing or for the surpassing value of Christ. So the bottom line statement that I'm trying to get across for you to consider as what Christianity really is, is that God means to be honored, worshipped. My heart and your heart, no exceptions in this room, want to be happy and we'd like it to be as full and as long as possible. And Christianity says those two things are not at odds. But rather... In the act of delighting in God, seeing him as the treasure in the field, you get the joy, he gets the glory. So I commend to you Jesus Christ as the one who not only is that treasure, but also is the one who died so that every obstacle in your heart between you and that treasure would be removed.